All hail King Jesus. Wow, we give the Lord praise and honor and glory today. Okay, you can have a seat. Uh, it's great to be with you today. I uh, just got back, I've been traveling a lot recently, and I just got back from Kenya this week. And for some of you that um, uh, don't know maybe the history, we started a, helped to start a theological school in Western Kenya 26 years ago. It's called Kima International School of Theology, and its purpose is to raise up leaders uh, within the church of East Africa. And uh, it's been an amazing, amazing journey, and uh, you've been a huge uh, part of it. And one, one of the things that I've been really passionate about, it was started, uh, the school was started by kind of a co- coordinated effort between a number of countries, and the staff was led for a long time by missionaries, uh, Western missionaries, missionaries from the United States, that uh, did an amazing job. In fact, uh, the first principal of the school, leader of the school, um, we sent half of our staff, 26 years ago, we sent half of our staff to start this school. Now, we only had two on staff, and so we sent one, and, and that was Steve Rennick, and he was the principal of the school for a number of years. And it's been an amazing journey, but my burden has always been for the school to transition from Western leadership to Kenyan leadership and indigenous leadership. We just feel like that is always um, going to allow an institution or a church to kind of reach its capacity is when it is uh, indigenous-led. And, uh, and that has happened over the last few years. And so it was really cool. I got to be there for the 26th uh, graduation. I got to be the person that conferred the degrees upon the graduates. Uh, I got to be there for the board meeting. And uh, it's amazing what's happening. Uh, For most of the 26 years, the student population has been like 60, 70, 80 students. Um, The student population right now, 506 students. And 506 students that are either getting certificates or diplomas or degrees. And that's really because this has become a Kenyan-led institution. And uh, we love that. We love investing as a church. You know, there's a fear oftentimes um, kind of on the mission field from organizations like this that if you don't let the missionaries in charge, be in charge, the money kind of goes away. And uh, one of the things that I have said uh, over and over again is for Fairfax, it's just the opposite, that we want to invest both human resources and financial resources in organizations that are led by indigenous leaders that allow them to live out really what God is calling them to do in the place where God has planted them. And so it's just really cool what's happening. You're a part of that. Um, Part of your giving to this congregation helps to go and support uh, Kima International School of Theology. So thank you so much uh, for that. So Bill and Natalie Zink have been members of this congregation for a long time. And uh, I'm gonna invite Bill to come up and do a little interview with them today. Would you welcome Bill Zink up to the stage? So Bill, welcome. Thank you for being willing to do this, two services, all of that. Uh, So Bill, you guys, how long have you and Natalie been a part of Fairfax? About a year after you finished this place. So about a year after we built this, so 2006, Mm -hmm. I guess, is when you guys started coming. And uh, 
you know that uh, we're talking about res, uh, we're talking about renovate today, and you know that we're going to be tithing off the renovate capital campaign, giving 10% of everything that comes in to help build uh, or rebuild houses in Haiti. Haiti that's been so devastated recently by so many things, but devastated by the earthquake that hit August 14th, 7.2, I think, on the Richter scale, 1.2 million people impacted, 534,000 kids, just devastating impact. And we're gonna be doing this with the help of a partner that we have had for a long time and that you've gotten connected to, uh, Teach Haiti, and Maquette, who oversees Teach Haiti. Talk a little bit, Bill, about kind of how you got involved at first with Teach Haiti, and, uh, and then just a little bit about the vision of the organization. Well, thanks, Rod, first for having me and giving me the opportunity to talk about Teach Haiti. And I wanna thank all of you because um, you know, it's, it's this place that has connected me to Teach Haiti and has brought the, you know, into reality what's going on. Ever since the earthquake, the day I landed after our first uh, trip down there. This uh, was I, 10 years ago, the earthquake. 10 years, 10 years, ago, years ago, yeah, ago, the yeah. 2010 and 11 earthquake in that January timeframe, we went down and I was with one of the first groups from this church that went down and with my daughter and you know, I just loved it immediately. It's just an incredible place. Even in the chaos and the destruction that was going on back then, the, the faith of the Haitians that I met is really just unflappable. Uh, Teach Haiti is an organization that really, its mission is to educate the poorest of the poor in Haiti. That's a country where a half a million kids go uneducated annually. And in fact, uh, this Teach Haiti school provides a good education and they, um, most of the kids that go there, it's the only meal they get for the day. And so it, it has a big impact on them. Uh, my involvement was with the earthquake. My daughter and I went down with the church, and um, the we just had a, a, an, an interesting experience in the middle of the earthquake. Since then, I've been back about a dozen times. Right. Uh, we have uh, worked on the main school in Port-au-Prince. We've built a park and a, and a playground for those kids there. And then subsequent to that, I used my connections up here in Northern Virginia to facilitate the design and ultimately the construction of a new school in St. Michelle, which is a rural part of, of Haiti, and uh, which is where Maquette is from. And frankly, you all, again, made a significant contribution. They tied off to the capital campaign for the project That's that right. we have built That's now. Right. Yeah. And that contribution really pushed the project to fruition. I mean, without it, it never would have happened. And so since then, a phase two has been built and we continue to educate the kids down there. And you're particularly uh, kind of positioned for this. What do you do vocationally? What's I'm a civil engineer. Civil engineer, so, so yeah. yeah. So I know it's been really helpful for them having someone like you with your skill set down there with all these projects that have been going on. I think we have a picture of, uh, I just want to give you some context. This is the first graduating class, 2022, the first graduating class of Teach Haiti. And uh, which is, yeah, which is kind of a miracle in itself, right, in terms of kids staying in school, uh, particularly ones that are uh, coming from not many resources and kids drop out of school all the time. So this is a miracle that has taken place. And I know that it's not just been the earthquake recently mm -hmm. that has kind of devastated Haiti. A couple other things that have gone on. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so uh, we, we had a trip planned this fall, and, you know, on top of COVID, they, they had their, the president was assassinated, and then we had the earthquake, and then vice versa. And then, uh, and then most recently, there was the kidnapping of the American missionaries, and that's just been a devastating blow to the community because no one can get in, and really a lot of people can't get out. 
And so they need us more than ever in that situation. The good news, though, is, is in that is that through the building of the school in St. Michelle, we are able to find a, a, a believer that is a, con a constructor, a contractor in Haiti, and he helped build the school, and he built it. Well, he did build the school. He built it, though, to modern standards. So we are able to bring American design standards down there and design it so that it can withstand certain earthquakes and flooding and winds from hurricanes. And he was able to, he's smart enough and been educated to be able to build that so it's going to withstand that work. And he's also going to help build these schools, uh, these homes for these um, 25 families that are without housing now. Right. So we have about 25, Maquette says there's 25 students and their families that have been directly impacted by this earthquake. And uh, I believe if we hit our goal with Renovate, we're going to be able to help to rebuild all 25 mm -hmm. of those homes. And particularly in this environment where it's really, really difficult to get in, having someone on the ground that is able to build these homes to standard, uh, to modern standards, to really kind of uh, position them in a better way with other things that come in the future to withstand that is just really, really cool Incredible. and exciting for us to be a part of. And I think, you know, one of the things I'm so excited about is that oftentimes when tragedy happens and you respond or you write a check or you send something, you're never quite sure, like, where that goes, what that's going to, and all of that, and to know uh, the families, the kids, uh, to be able to hear their stories, to be able to see the houses after they are built is gonna be an amazing, amazing thing. So, Bill, thank you so much for all of the investment that you have placed into Teach Haiti and uh, a representative really kind of for us as a church. So thank you so much for that. Would you show your appreciation to Bill Zink? Thanks, thanks, man. All right, uh, next Sunday is a Commitment Sunday for Renovate, and uh, so we're praying that everyone who calls Fairfax home is going to be a part of this, is going to make a, a commitment to uh, Renovate, and uh, I was just kind of running the numbers this week that if every person, every family, if every family that already gives to Fairfax to help us accomplish the mission and the vision of this place. If every family over the next 13 months were to give an additional $884, like we would reach our million dollar goal. And, uh, and so I know that for some of you, $884 over the next 13 months seems like a million dollars and you might not be able to do that. And I know that there are others of you who God has really blessed over this last year, and you're able to do way more than $884. In fact, we have two individuals in our church that have given lead gifts of $50,000 to kind of get this thing off the ground, and uh, so we're really excited about that. Next Sunday, Commitment Sunday, so kind of come prepared to, uh, to think through, pray through this week what it is that God is laying on your heart to participate in the Renovate campaign. All right, so uh, we're in week three of our Ezekiel series, and as we mention every week, um, hundred, just a little bit of context. Hundreds of years have passed since uh, the Israelites were in the wilderness and uh, waiting to kind of enter into the promised land. They enter into the land that God has prepared for them. They build this amazing city, Jerusalem. They build these walls around the city to protect it. They build this beautiful temple, the Holy of Holies, and the Ark of the Covenant resides within that. 
But here's the deal, and this is not just true for Israel thousands of years ago, this is just kind of true in general in culture, is uh, just because things are going well uh, in a culture politically and economically and culturally and maybe even religiously doesn't mean that, that they're where God wants them to be. And uh, the reality is that Israel is actually living in disobedience to the Lord, even though everything is going super, they're living in disobedience to the Lord, and all kinds of things reflect that. They're acting unjustly, their leaders are abusing their power, they're taking advantage of the power they've been given, they're thinking only about their own needs, not about the needs of others, all of that. And because of their disobedience, they experience God's judgment, they're uh, overpowered by the Babylonian Empire. There's a number of times in which Babylon comes in to Jerusalem, but the first time they come, they just take away kind of the brightest and the best of the leaders of Israel, the leaders in kind of every channel of culture, and they take them into Babylonian exile. And one of the young leaders that they take into Babylonian exile is this priest by the name of Ezekiel. And God uses Ezekiel while he is in Babylonian uh, exile. He uses Ezekiel to prophesy to the people of Israel about the devastating impact of their uh, disobedience. And he prophesies, he brings a message of judgment and justice, but he also brings a message of hope and restoration. And it starts with this vision that we talked about the first week where Ezekiel is reminded that the presence of God is in Babylon, that the presence of God is not just in the temple, it's not just of the Ark of the Covenant, that the presence of God is even there in Babylon. And then Jess did, last week, did just an amazing job of talking about this second vision that Ezekiel has that ends with this powerful declaration on the part of God where he says in spite of their disobedience that they are still God's people and God is still their God. Now, in chapters one through 33, we're gonna focus on chapter 34, so we're gonna move through the rest of the book like really quick to get to chapter 34. But in chapters one through 33, Ezekiel, this priest-turned-prophet, does about everything that he can do to communicate uh, the impact of the disobedience that the Israelites are engaged in. And he does all of this stuff, and a lot of it is just kind of weird and bizarre. First, he performs this kind of street theater that is really bizarre, and it's intended to like get people's attention. So, for instance, he, he builds this little model of Jerusalem, and then he attacks it, and he destroys it, trying to communicate what's going to happen to Jerusalem. Or he, he, uh, he takes a sword at one point, and he, he cuts off his hair as a kind of an act of destruction and what God is going to do. And, and he, then he plays the role at one point, he plays the role of a scapegoat. So the scapegoat is the lamb, the sheep that was taken outside of the city gates as kind of an appeasement for the sins of the people. He plays the role of a scapegoat. He binds himself up. He lays on his side for a year. And for a year, all he does is eat food cooked over poop. And basically, the message is like, this is the stench of your disobedience before God. And then he uses a bunch of parables to describe Israel's disobedience. He compares Israel 
to a burnt, useless stick, and then he compares Israel to an unfaithful spouse, and then he compares Israel to a raging lion that has been captured, and then he compares uh, Israel to a pair of promiscuous sisters. And then he acts like a lawyer. He pretends he's in a courtroom. He acts like a lawyer, and he argues that Israel needs to be held accountable for their disobedience, and they need to experience God's justice. And then finally, in chapter 33, a refugee who has fled Jerusalem finds Ezekiel, and he comes and tells Ezekiel that everything that he's been prophesying about has happened, that indeed Jerusalem has fallen, that the walls around Jerusalem uh, lay in ruins, that the temple has been destroyed. The Ark of the Covenant has been lost and taken away. The Holy of Holies has been destroyed. All that he's been warning the people about has now come true. All of which brings us to Ezekiel 35. So that's 33 chapters in five minutes, okay? So Ezekiel 34, uh, that won't be five minutes. I'll just say, I'm gonna spend a little more time on Ezekiel 34. One of the main metaphors in Ezekiel 34 is this metaphor that we see throughout Scripture that helps us understand ourselves and helps us understand God. It's this metaphor of the shepherd and the sheep. 400 times, or around 400 times in the Bible, humanity is described or depicted as sheep. And over 100 times in the Bible, God is depicted as the shepherd. And in Ezekiel 34, it's the longest development of that metaphor, of that metaphor of humanity being like sheep and God being like the shepherd. Like this is where that metaphor is developed better than anywhere else in scripture. Now, what's interesting is that chapter 34 begins not by focusing on God as shepherd, but on the leaders of Israel as shepherds. This is how it starts, verse one. The word of the Lord came to me. This is Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the courage, you clothe yourselves. He's talking about the leaders of Israel. You lead the courage, you clothe yourselves with wool and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You do not take care of the people. You've not strengthened the weak. You've not healed the sick. You've not bound up the injured. You've, you've not brought back the strays. You've not searched for the lost. You've ruled them harshly. You've ruled them uh, brutally, they were scattered because there's no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild. They became incredibly vulnerable. Therefore, O shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. Now, several things I want you to notice there. First of all, I want you to notice that all of the leaders of Israel, and not just the religious leaders, the, the, the civil leaders, the political leaders, the kings, uh, and the religious leaders, the priests, like all of the leaders of Israel are called shepherds. In fact, in the Bible, the most common metaphor for a leader of any kind is that of a shepherd. So according to the Bible, if you lead like a company 
or you lead a division within a company, or you lead a department, or you lead a board, or you lead a small group, or you lead a family, or whatever it is, like you, according to scripture, you are a shepherd. Now, you may not see yourself as a shepherd, you may not want to carry that mantle, but according to the Bible, like if you lead in any way, you are a shepherd. And what God is doing in the first part of chapter 34 is he is indicting the, the leaders of Israel for having been the primary contributors to the destruction of Israel, of being the primary contributors to the fact that Israel finds themselves in Babylonian exile. And that's an important point because God's harshest judgment in scripture is usually not directed toward the people in general. Usually it's directed toward those who are entrusted with leadership over the people. And you see that with Jesus as well. Like Jesus dishes out some really, really harsh judgment, but his judgment is hardly ever directed just toward the masses, towards the people. His judgment is almost always directed toward the leaders. In the case of Jesus, it's the religious leaders. And you see that throughout scripture, that the harshest judgment of God is directed to those who are in leadership in some way. It's a reminder of the importance of leadership and of the devastating impact it can have when leaders fail, whether it's political leaders, religious leaders, family leaders, moms, dads, husbands, wives, whatever it is, the devastating impact when leaders fail. Secondly, I want you to notice that, I want you to notice all the ways that the leaders of Israel have failed because God outlines all the ways. So in verse two, he says, they were, they, 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 all they were focused on was taking care of themselves and their needs and not taking care of the flock, not taking care of the sheep. In verse four, the first part of verse four, it says that they ignored the most vulnerable people among them. They ignored the weak, the sick, the, the imprisoned, the injured, the lost. And the second part of verse four, it says that they, they ruled, the people who they led, they ruled harshly. They, they ruled brutally. In other words, they abused the people that they were leading. And that's a pretty good description of like bad leaders, whatever the culture, whatever the time, whatever the setting, uh, that's a, whatever the company, whatever the organization, that's a pretty good description of bad leadership in general. First of all, bad leaders are motivated by the wrong things, right? They're motivated primarily by how their leadership role can advance them, how it can serve them, how it can position them for, for something bigger, for something better, for something more. Bad leaders are more focused on taking care of themselves rather than taking care of the flock. In, in fact, bad leaders, and you see this throughout history, you see this in government, you see this in church leadership, you see it in family leadership sometimes, like you see this throughout history. Bad leaders use the flock to further themselves. Their desire is not to serve, their desire is to be served. Secondly, bad leaders see the vulnerable mostly as just an inconvenience. Like bad leaders don't really even notice the weak or the sick or the injured or the, the lost. It's as if they're invisible. It's as if they, they don't exist because if you can somehow manage to not see someone, if you can somehow manage to not see the vulnerable, then you can ignore their needs and just focus on your own agenda and on your own needs. And then thirdly, bad leaders are abusive. 
right? They pursue performance. It's not that bad leaders are bad because they don't pursue performance. A lot of bad leaders are really good at pursuing performance, but they pursue performance without caring for the people who are responsible for that performance. They, they value speaking truth. They, they like to tell it like it is. They, they take great pride in the fact that they tell it like it is, but without speaking that truth in love. They, they weaponize words. They weaponize situations. They take advantage of the failures of others and the vulnerabilities of others and the hurt and the pain of others to achieve their own goals. Now, the reason that bad shepherds, and this is kind of the whole point of the chapter, the reason that bad shepherds are so devastating is because the ones that they are leading, according to scripture and according to chapter 34, the ones that they are leading are like sheep. Like I said earlier, over 400 times in scripture, humanity is described or depicted as sheep. And what we often fail to realize is that that's not a compliment. Like sometimes we, we look at like these furry little sheep and we go, oh, sheep and lambs, that's really cool, we're sheep. And it's like, no, 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 that is not a compliment, that God is not complimenting us when he refers to us as sheep. Sheep are not the smartest animals in the world. Like they easily get lost uh, and unlike dogs and cats, they can almost never find their way back home on their own, even when the sheepfold is like within sight, even when the shepherd finds the sheep that are lost, like it's almost impossible to round them up and bring them home because sheep don't follow very well. I, I, I've been in airports a lot recently and I, I was in one airport and I saw this guy walking through the airport with this dog by his side. I don't know if that's legal, you're allowed to do that, I'm not sure. But he had this little dog by his side and I was just noticing the dog was not on a leash and, and the dog was not, um, didn't have a mask on. And, uh, and the dog uh, and, and, the, and the, the owner, I guess it was the owner, like wasn't even looking at the dog, wasn't paying any attention to the dog, was just like doing his thing. And, and the dog was like, perfectly in step with the owner. Like everywhere the owner went, the dog went. And the dog was not a step ahead and the dog was not a step behind. The dog was like always perfectly by his side, just following him. And it kind of got me interested. So I followed the guy, I stalked the guy for a while just to kind of see how long this lasted. And it just, it never stopped, you know? And and finally the dog turned and said, what are you doing? No, and, uh, and it was just like wherever the guy went, like that's where the dog, the dog just like perfectly followed its master. Sheep are not like that. Like sheep do not do that. Sheep are extremely obstinate. And that's why when a shepherd finds a lost sheep, sometimes they have to, to bind them up, to tie them up and put them on their shoulders just to get them to come back home. And in addition to that, sheep often put themselves in very dangerous situations, standing in unsafe places, eating unsafe things. They, they, they have, have to be tended regularly because they're always getting hurt and sick, and, and they have to be cleaned regularly, oftentimes with very, very strong chemicals because they're subject to getting infested with really, really nasty pests. And that's the metaphor. And that's the metaphor 
that the Bible uses to describe us. Like that's the metaphor that the Bible uses to describe the human race. And again, it's not a compliment, but it does give us a little bit better understanding of what Isaiah and many others are talking about when they talk about us as sheep. Isaiah in Isaiah 53 says it this way. We all like sheep. We all like sheep have gone astray and each of us has turned to his own way. And the original audience who would have heard that, when he said, we all like sheep have turned away, they would all went, yeah, yeah, that's what sheep do. Like, they, they, now I get it. Like, we all like sheep have turned away. Each of us has turned to his own way. Sheep tend to go astray. They tend to go their own way. And that's why they need a shepherd. And when the shepherds fail, when the leaders fail, like they did in Israel, the impact on the sheep is absolutely devastating. And that's what you see with the exile. The leaders failed, and because of that, the impact on the sheep is devastating. And that's why the Israelites find themselves exiled in Babylon. Their leaders have failed them. Now, here's where you would think that this narrative in chapter 34 would go in a particular direction. But it actually takes a, a very interesting twist. You would think that at this point in Israel's story, God would be primarily focused on getting the leaders of Israel, getting the shepherds, getting the ones who are in charge, getting the ones who have gotten the people into this mess, that you would think God would primarily be focused on getting the leaders of Israel straightened out. Like you would think God's message at this point would be, if you leaders could just get your act together. Like if you leaders could just be good leaders rather than the crummy bad leaders that you are, then everything would be okay. You could leave Babylon, you could get out of exile, you could go back home, you could make Israel great again, you could do all of that. Like if you leaders would just get your act together, everything would be fine. All that could happen if you shepherds would just be better shepherds. But that's not the direction that the narrative goes. And that's not what God says next. Look at what he says next in verse 11. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As the shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them. I'll rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries. I will bring them into their own land. I will do all of that. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel and the ravines and in all the settlements in the land. I'll tend them in good pleasure. All the stuff that shepherds do. And the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. They will lie down in good grazing land and they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost. I will bring back the strays, the sheep that stray away. I'll bind up the injured ones. I will strengthen the weakened ones, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock. I will shepherd the flock with justice. Now, don't miss the point here. This is where sometimes we're talking about God as shepherd or God as 
heavenly father or God as parent or whatever, we miss the point when we think about God's role with all of that. This is not God saying, well, the shepherds of Israel, the leaders of Israel, the political leaders, the religious leaders, like they've blown it. And so I'm gonna step in. Like they, they couldn't do what they were supposed to do. And so since they couldn't do what they were supposed to do, I'm gonna step in and, and I'm gonna take over for them. Or to use a, a sports metaphor, I got the NFL on my mind uh, and my fantasy team that's gonna lose this weekend. But anyway, that's another point. Uh, to use a sports metaphor, it's not like the leaders of Israel were the starting shepherds and God is like the backup shepherd who comes in when the starter is performing badly. Uh, in those situations, like you don't need the backup if the starter is doing everything right, if the starter is doing their job. The people of Israel, in that kind of scenario, the people of Israel wouldn't need God to be their shepherd if just the leaders of Israel, the shepherds of Israel, had just done their job, like they wouldn't need God to be their shepherd. That's not what's happening here. Yes, the shepherds of Israel have failed. But here's the deal, it's not unique to this time and this setting and this place. Like that's the story of humankind. That's the history of the world, right? Have you ever heard someone say, maybe you've said it recently, maybe you've heard someone say it recently, whatever. Have you ever heard someone say like, we're experiencing a crisis of leadership in our country or we're experiencing a crisis of leadership in our culture. And let me just say, whoever it is that says that and whenever it is that they say it and whatever's going on when they say it, it's true because that's the history of the world. Like that's the history, that's true in every generation. In a broken, sinful world, there will always be a crisis of leadership. Even the best political leaders, even the best religious leaders, even the best parents, the best moms, the best dads will at times let you down. Like they will not be the shepherd that you in your sheepness need. Like, yeah, amen. And we won't, that's not a reflection on anybody's parent. I just want you to know. So, but here's the deal. Like I talk to folks Sometimes, and it's like they talk about the failure of leadership and this and that, and this is going on. Oftentimes, they talk about their own mom, their own dad, whatever. It's just like, yeah, I feel like, I feel like my mom and dad sometimes just were not the, you know, the mom and dad that I needed. And I'm just like, welcome to the human race. Like, it just doesn't matter. Like, even the greatest, I had awesome, awesome, awesome parents. But there are times when even the best moms, the best dads in the world like let us down and are not the shepherd that we need in our sheepness. Now, that's not to minimize the importance of good human shepherds. Like we need political leaders who are good shepherds. Oh my goodness, do we need that. We need political leaders that are good shepherds. We need religious leaders that are good shepherds. We need moms and dads that are good shepherds. But at their best, and this is really the message of scripture. At their best, these shepherds, these human shepherds, at their best, they are partial and highly flawed and a highly flawed solution to our sheepness. If you look to some political leader to be your ultimate shepherd, you will always be disappointed. 
If you look to some religious leader to be your ultimate shepherd, you will always be disappointed. If you look to your mom, your dad, no matter how great they are, to be your ultimate shepherd, you will always be disappointed. Your heart longs, my heart longs, your heart longs for a different kind of shepherd. A shepherd who never stops searching for his sheep, no matter how long they're gone, no matter how far they wander. A shepherd who is willing to go into any situation, no matter how dangerous it is to rescue his sheep. A shepherd who has sheep scattered in all the nations, everywhere, throughout the world, and is constantly at work to bring them home. A shepherd who never, 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 never fails to bind up the sheep when they're injured, to strengthen the sheep when they're weak, to protect the sheep when they are in danger. And God is telling the Israelites, and he's telling us, I am that shepherd. Like, I am the shepherd your heart longs for. And yes, there are human shepherds that are put in place as kind of partial, imperfect pale imitations of what ultimately only I can be. I am that shepherd that your heart needs. Now, as Exodus 34 ends, it kind of ends in a little bit of an interesting way because he's taken this whole chapter to say, I'm, I'm the shepherd that your heart needs. And then he says something in that sounds a little bit confusing until you kind of unpack it a little bit. It says in verse 23, I will place over them one shepherd. He's just talking about himself as shepherd. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he will tend them, and he will tend them and be their shepherd. I'm the Lord and will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Then they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the sovereign Lord. You are my sheep the sheep of my pasture, you are the people, I am your God, declares the sovereign Lord. Now on the surface, you read that, and that doesn't seem to make sense, right? Like how can David be their shepherd if God is their shepherd? Is it God that's their shepherd or is it David that's their shepherd? God as shepherd, David as shepherd. And the answer to that is yes, because God is clearly not talking about King David here, because King David is dead. King David died generations before all of this. God is talking about someone who is to come, who is a descendant of David. He's talking about Jesus. God is reminding them that he is not going to be a shepherd, that the kind of shepherd he is is not going to be a shepherd who shepherds from a distance, that he's going to be a shepherd that comes near. He's going to be a shepherd that, that gets his hands dirty. He's going to be a shepherd that, that takes on flesh. He's going to be a shepherd that is willing to, to risk his life and not just willing to risk his life, but actually lays down his life. He's going to be a shepherd that that is wounded, is a shepherd that goes through hardship and difficulty and struggles, like that's the kind of shepherd that he is, that he's actually gonna be a shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And that's exactly what Jesus declares in John 10. And there's all these places in the New Testament, now they start to make sense more, where Jesus says, I'm the shepherd, I'm the shepherd, I'm the good shepherd. 
And then you start to realize as you connect all this back to Ezekiel, and you go, oh, yeah, that's what he was talking about there. Where Jesus says in John 10, 11, I'm the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Now, here's the question. I just want to wrap up this sermon with this question. Then we'll wrap up the series next week. But the question is this, like, are you allowing Jesus to be your shepherd? Like, it's possible for Jesus to be your shepherd, to be your savior, and not be your shepherd. It, it's possible to trust what Jesus did on the cross to forgive you for your sins and not trust him to shepherd you. So are you allowing Jesus to be your shepherd? Like, are you allowing Jesus into the spaces of your life where you are wounded and allowing him to be the one that binds you up? Or are you still trying to somehow fix yourself? Are you allowing Jesus to enter into the spaces of your life where you're weak, where you feel weak and powerless and allow him to be your strength? Or are you still trying to be your own strength, trying to lean into your own strength, your own gifts, your own talents, your own abilities, your own resourcefulness to respond to the weakness that sometimes we feel? Are, are you allowing Jesus to, to enter into all of that? Are you allowing Jesus to enter into the spaces of your life where you're afraid and allowing him to be your protector? Or are you still trying to kind of mask over your, your fears with your own performance and your own accomplishment and your own stuff and, and trying to mask over the fact that you are afraid? Are you allowing Jesus, this is what it means to be a shepherd. Are you allowing Jesus to enter the spaces of your life, the areas of your life where you've gotten a little lost, where you've gone a little astray, where that space, that area doesn't really reflect the will of God, the best that God has for you. It doesn't reflect God's purposes and direction for your life. You've just gotten a little lost in that area, this, this behavior, this relationship, this attitude, whatever it is, this space where you've just gotten a little lost. Are you allowing Jesus as the shepherd to enter into that space and to bring you back home? Or are you still being the obstinate sheep? that does not want to follow the shepherd, at least not in that area of your life. The message of God in Ezekiel 34 is, I want you to allow me to be your shepherd. Not just your savior, your shepherd. And I want to end today by just praying together in unison. We don't do this that often, but 
to pray together in unison the prayer that the psalmist David prayed in acknowledging that he wanted the Lord to be his shepherd, not just his savior. He wanted the Lord to be his shepherd. Psalm 23, it's, that, it's, it's interesting that oftentimes the only time we read Psalm 23 is at funerals and it's, it's not really a funeral passage. It's like a, it's like a daily passage. It, it's like a, this is what it means to allow Jesus to shepherd us on a daily basis. And so along with David, let, let's just read this. We'll put it on the screen. Let's just read this together as our, as our prayer as a congregation. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God, we confess today that sometimes we look to other people and other things to be a substitute shepherd in our lives. We confess when at times we have looked to political leadership to be our ultimate shepherd. Or when we have looked to religious leadership to be our ultimate shepherd. Or when we have looked to our mom or our dad or some mentor in our life to be our ultimate shepherd. Because Lord, we know that even at their best, they are pale imitations, partial solutions to that which only you can be for us, our shepherd. And Lord, we confess today when we have walled off areas of our lives, relationships, behaviors, attitudes, whatever, and not allowed you to shepherd us, have not allowed you to lead us where we have been obstinate and have not been willing to follow you. We confess that today. You are our shepherd. We are your sheep. And you are the one who can lead and protect and provide and bind up and restore. And we give you thanks for that today. May we allow you to be our shepherd. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.